Hello, and welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm the producer and also an occasional host, Caroline Roberts. In this episode, Acton's Director of Communications, John Caritas, speaks with Tim Carney, an editor at the Washington Examiner and a visiting fellow at AEI. They'll be talking about his new book called Alienated America. Many say that the American dream is fading away in the country, and the problem isn't pure economics, nor is it the case of stubborn old white men falling behind because they refuse to embrace progress. Tim argues that the root cause of our problems, including crumbling families, despair, and political dysfunction, is the erosion of community and local civil institutions, but most especially the church. The result of a secularizing country is alienation for the working class, causing people to struggle to build families and improve their lives without the support they need. If you want to learn more about Tim's book and his research, Acton will be hosting an upcoming event here in Grand Rapids at the Knickerbocker on April 3, and you can register at acton.org slash events. Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute. I'm your host, John Caritas, and today we're talking with Timothy P. Carney, the commentary editor of the Washington Examiner and a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thank you for having me. Tim also has a new book out titled Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. And Tim will be in Grand Rapids at one of our Acton on Tap events on April 3rd talking about his book. And you can find out more about that event on our website. It's at a very cool uh, craft brewery called the Knickerbocker in downtown Grand Rapids. And uh, it promises to be a fun, interesting chat that night. We have today, this is March 1, put up a blog post on the Power Blog that links to a new op-ed that Tim wrote for the New York Post. And in it, he picks up some themes that he addresses in his new book. And I'm just going to read a, a, a quote here from the, from the blog post. Belonging to a church is a crucial element of living a good, happy, healthy life. And this phenomenon ripples out from the individuals into the community. Places like Sioux Center or Salt Lake City with full, vibrant churches, are places with more upward mobility, more marriage, and more family formation. What I appreciated about the book, Tim, is that, you know, you did the analysis of the 2016 election, the voting results, the demographics. We looked at economic trends that have been going on here. But you took the analysis much deeper into how places with strong civic life community ties are actually doing much better than other places that have lost those in recent years. What did you learn? I mean, did you did you go looking for this insight, or is this something you discovered as you um, plumbed the, uh, the roots of the uh, 2016 Trump election? So it really did jump out to me on a map as we were looking at some of the primary results. And again, we're talking about the primaries, not the general election where there's just two choices. Right. Talking about when people are in Iowa, for instance, choosing amongst among 17 different candidates, including Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, John Kasich, et cetera, and seeing that what we used to think of in the 
earlier elections as sort of the rural evangelical vote that would go for people like Rick Santorum or, or Mike Huckabee, that there was a split among that vote, that some of these people were ending up as Cruz or Rubio voters, and some of them were ending up as Trump voters. And so I tried to ask, what's, what's the difference between some of these types of places? And a big part of it was if you looked in Sioux County, Iowa, Trump's worst county, it's a rural county in northwest Iowa, it's also defined uh, – well, the other thing that sets it apart is that it's the most religious county in all of Iowa. It's got the highest share of evangelicals, and that's not even the number one sort of religious denomination by the people who do these sort of countings. There's even more mainline Protestants, but they all fit into the category of sort of Dutch Reformed. And so these, you visit these places, and you see this incredibly strong communities because the churches are aimed at building the infrastructure that makes it easier to raise families and, and to live life. And so obviously out there in, in western Michigan, you guys know exactly what I'm talking about, but this is the sort of thing that was lost to a lot of political reporters, a lot of us in Washington and New York. And the places that were very strongly for Trump were rural places where instead of strong, robust churches, there were churches shutting down. And not just churches, other institutions. Little League, the the public schools didn't have as much parental involvement. Just social capital and and little platoons of civil society, the more those there were, the better outcomes as far as teenage pregnancy, high school dropouts, uh, drug use, you had you had less of the bad stuff where you had stronger civil society, and you also had less Trump support. So the way I came to look at it was that an early vote for Trump in Iowa or the Michigan primaries was a vote that you think the American dream is dead. So it was really telling to look at the places where the American dream seemed alive. Right, and those places were not big, big wins for Trump. And as you point out, the uh, GOP primaries – really showed different results in the general election. And you visit places in in West Michigan, in Wisconsin, Iowa, these very tight-knit, cohesive communities where the Dutch Reformed Church is the keystone of that community. And yeah, you see that uh, quite clearly. One of the things that I appreciated in your book, you you also mentioned um, labor unions as uh, civic institutions that helped bring this cohesive together, cohesiveness together. And a lot of those have been lost as well. But back in the day when labor unions were bigger and stronger, labor halls were often community centers, places where you found news, places where you went to dinners and that sort of thing. A lot of these manufacturing towns or steel mill towns, they've lost all that as well. The, the labor union as an institution of civil society is something that, I mean, even conservatives who are good at talking about localism and, and clubs and that sort of thing may not immediately uh, bring up labor unions because they seem like a, a liberal or overly political organization. But it's important to understand that they do play a very important role. And it's especially important for those of us who have sort of white-collar office jobs. I think about my workplace, and it's it's a source of friendship. It's a source of community. It's a source of modeling and a safety net. The uh, the preface to Alienated America is a story about when our daughter was in the hospital, and a lot of the support we got was from people at my job, at the Examiner or at AEI. 
In your parish. That, that was a very moving story you opened the book with, yeah. Yeah, and our parish. But the point is that the workplace often is a, a great place of that sort of thing, but it can be different in a uh, a blue-collar job. And there, the a lot of the camaraderie and solidarity is going to come from the, the labor union as an institution of civil society and not just a bargaining institution, not not primarily a political organization in the sense of funding candidates and, and lobbying for bills, but an understanding which is more prevalent, I write, in Northern Europe unions because of the legal structure is different. But unions are, can be, and have been these strong institutions that bring people together. So Again, if if the early Trump vote had to do in large part because and and even the the Democrats who voted for Trump in the general, I think it's the same thing. A lot of them were people who were folks who saw the American dream was dead, who were feeling the sense of alienation and detachment. And so Trump's outperformance of Mitt Romney among union households in Michigan more than accounts for his win of Michigan. In other words, if he had not improved on Romney's um, union performance, he would have lost Michigan and Hillary would have won. And so there's something about people who have lost some of that civil society, have lost their little platoon that brought them to Donald Trump. And we could talk about the politics a lot later, but the the more important story I think here is the struggle of the working class is not simply an economic one. It's primarily a cultural one. Specifically, it's the loss of strong community institutions that bring people together, that provide modeling and support and a sense of purpose. Yeah, and I appreciated your pointing to the cultural importance of simply having a job, showing up every day, working hard, and that very mundane routine in a lot of households. And many of them are labor union members, but not all of them. But that's where a lot of people learned how to model themselves in civil society. A job was a big part of that. So when the job goes, a lot goes with it. Upward mobility, the ability to do more for yourself and those around you, if you do have a family or if you are married. So that also was something I was struck by that in, in your findings. Yeah, so I call it the uh, the Joe Adams effect. This is, is, I have stories from my own reporting around the country throughout Alienated America, and I think this is the oldest one. This is from 2005. I met Joe in uh, Bloomington, Indiana. The GE factory there was shutting down. He told me about when he was looking for the job right out of high school. He said, quote, they they told me I couldn't get a factory job without factory experience. It didn't make sense. What experience did you need? Classic. Are you going to, and what they told him was, are you going to be here on time every day? Are you experienced with the mundane? Can you stand to do the same thing again and again? And so then what I write is, GE didn't need workers with training in machinery, refrigeration, or really anything. They needed a man who would show up on time, wait till the whistle to take lunch, call in when he wasn't going to show, tolerate hours of the unpleasant, and largely do as he was told. I was a single 26-year-old guy when Joe and I had this conversation, and so I didn't see then what I see now. These skills of the unskilled factory job are the skills of marriage and fatherhood. Being a good husband doesn't require an advanced degree, and you don't need a college education for it. And so I say what you need are these basic skills, which we could call virtues, and that factory jobs cultivate 
and reward those virtues. And losing these jobs, uh, I think, led to a, a real loss of important social capital for a lot of people who weren't going to go to college and were going to try to graduate high school and start a life. Yeah. And as these jobs left, these factory jobs left, you see you, you visited a uh, mill town in, near Pittsburgh. But if you, in Michigan here, if you drive up I-75 and look at those areas where manufacturing has basically abandoned these cities, there's just nothing that came back. And when those jobs left, the models for those working people uh, who were going to grow up and take those jobs, they left too. And so that explains a lot of the dysfunction in these communities. There just isn't any structure for people to get up in the morning and go to something and be responsible for others around them. So I think that's a really good point. That's exactly right. And sometimes we take that structure for granted, or sometimes we even resent how busy you are. If you're living in a strong religious community or just a tight-knit neighborhood, or if you're sort of in elite circles, you have the opposite problem, which I always say when I'm saying I feel too busy, I, I always say it's better than the alternative because that vacancy is is the plague of the parts of America, Appalachia, or a lot of the Midwest that is suffering. You, your book does a really good job of analyzing the uh, voting returns of the election. You look at the demographics, you look at economic trends. I want to talk very briefly about your observations about manufacturing. There seems to be a Everyone knows that manufacturing has deserted America and the loss of manufacturing jobs uh, explains a lot of what's going on in some of these abandoned towns. But it's not that simple, is it? No. So we've, we've lost a ton of manufacturing jobs, but manufacturing as a share of the economy has been relatively stable, even going back to the 1950s. So trade has certainly meant that, you know, there are steel mills that were competing with China that shut down because they couldn't compete on price. And I talk about one of them out near Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that automation and what economists would call higher productivity, more efficiency, is what's cost a lot of the manufacturing jobs, that fewer people are able to make as much stuff. That's the real main story when it comes to the, the loss of manufacturing jobs in this country. So that's a lot more complicated of a tale than the tale that the politicians of both parties tend to tell. Yeah, and that's important to know. One of the things you, you wrote about was uh, mobility and how mobility seemed to be localized in places that are doing very well. If, if others around you, supported by civic institutions and families and good work, are doing well, you tend to do better than you would living in other places. And one of the reasons that people in these pockets of despair, where we've read all about the unemployment and substance abuse and opioid deaths are people who just simply are not going to leave. and They're going to stay right there where there's no opportunity. Do I have that right? Yeah. I mean, it's a real tricky uh, story here because uh, one way I look at it is that there's two different visions, two competing visions of the American dream. One is that most of us who are here are here because our ancestors got on a boat and left Europe. And then if you're out in Michigan, it could be that your ancestors left the East Coast and went out to the frontier. And if you're in Washington, D.C., it's because certainly, almost certainly, you left home and, and came to here where I am. And so all, most of my immigrant, most of my neighbors here are immigrants. And that's kind of one tale of the American dream is get up and go. And another tale, though, is what Alexis de Tocqueville 
tells. And throughout Alienated America, I quote him, and he's sort of the idea of people attaching themselves to and investing themselves in neighborhoods and communities and in town hall, town meeting, and all that stuff involves and presumes a sort of planting of roots. So the, the planting of roots and the frontier uh, mentality are sort of these these very difficult competing ones. And I, I address the tension throughout Alienated America, talking about guys who feel stuck or guys who want to leave or guys who were told they should have left and didn't. And I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not in the business of telling people how to, how to handle a difficult decision because personally I'm the kind of guy who really loves to plant roots. But I also know that there's no right to earn a living where you are is one way of looking at it. And that's one of the responses to people who are really upset that their factory jobs left and went to some other part of the country. On the other hand, there's something a little bit dehumanizing about the the purely economic story that says, oh, well, you ought to be able to just get up and move because the jobs went somewhere else. Well, if you're really invested in a place, then that's that's asking a lot. Yeah, and that's a very callous response to someone who's in that situation. You're asking them basically, especially you think of someone who's worked in a factory and they lost their job, they're now in their late 50s. They're going to get up and move and start life over again, leave family, friends, everything else that defines their their life. They're just going to pick up and leave. You know, It's just not a small thing to ask people to do it, and, and only they should be the one to, to make that decision. One of the really fascinating things about your book is that, you know, people say, well, let's, let's, as we've done, you know, this exists in tension. People in this country have forever moved to where the jobs and the money are. Boom towns, goes back to the Wild West and mining towns. Today, the boom towns are often these man camps where oil fields are going uh, great guns with fracking, North Dakota, West Texas. And you would think that here are a lot of these largely male oil workers moving to these places. They're very rootless places. And you think, well, this is this is the answer. Jobs, they're making six-figure incomes. There you go, problem solved. But really, the fact is they don't really have these civic ties that a much healthier community would have. That's exactly right. When we look at, we, we talked a little about the politics earlier, but also... What I'm writing about are sort of measurable outcomes, things that we we know are are good in life. So avoiding drug or alcohol abuse, avoiding uh, teenage pregnancy, avoiding high school dropouts. And I think it's clear, and I argue throughout the book, that marriage is one of those good things. We should want people to get married. Not everybody has to get married, obviously, but in America today, there's a retreat from marriage, and it's it that's correlated with a lot of bad outcomes. The social science is clear on that one. Yes. Places that the, the retreat from marriage is mostly among the working class, and a lot of really well-intentioned, warm-hearted liberals who uh, appreciate the value of marriage will say, well, so the key is just getting these people more money so they can afford to raise a family. And on paper, that almost makes sense. But the these fracking boom towns, even the places not like I, – I went out to Williston, North Dakota, but if you go out to places that are less remote, there's still 
the influx of money that came with fracking did not bring with it a return to marriage. This is what uh, a social scientist from the Brookings Institution, she's a liberal economist, and she was expecting to see the return to marriage and didn't find it. And what the Washington Post wrote it up as saying, oh, I guess women aren't interested in marriageable men anymore. Their definition of marriageable men was men with lots of money. Earning power, and right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I said so that's that's a pretty materialistic way of looking at it. But maybe it's that people don't form families in environments that don't seem like family environments. Yeah, it's not like you, I have to wait till I can afford to get married, or I can wait till I afford to have children. I mean, that's not what human society has ever done before. That's correct. You you want to be in a place where you think you can build, raise a family, and have a future. And the man camp exactly seems right. like a very alien place for that. Lots of money, but not much else. You know, I mean, the man camps, when I, I was describing it on a, a podcast with um, some of my colleagues at AEI, and these guys were guys in their 20s, and they almost started drooling when I described it, because you've sure. got your own flat screen TV in sure. your little dorm, all you can eat 24-7 cheeseburgers and french fries, <laughs> endless pool tables, foosball tables, giant flat screen TVs with uh, barco loungers in the common areas, and every football game is on, and oh yeah, video games as well. It's If you were to say, here, for a responsibility-free 22-year-old guy, What's the dream world going to be? This is what it was. And so the women in those towns were not getting married um, because it was the infrastructure was built for a sort of transactional, low responsibility lifestyle. It was not built for the sort of commitment that is family. And that's, that's what so many of us almost take for granted when you get married you're sort of, if you're not living there, you have an eye on the type of place you're going to live where you imagine bringing your kids to church or you imagine bringing them to T-ball or you imagine the playground, you know the playground you're going to wheel them to in the wagon. That's the way uh, the environmental contributor to this is a, is a key that so many people overlook when they try to just come up with a materialistic or even just a moralistic explanation. I think it's environment, that you need the right environment to raise families. And the more you have places like that, the more families you're going to have. Yeah. you And you live in communities that have this social cohesion. You are responsible for people. You are helping others, neighbors, community, church, union hall, Bridge Club, Garden Club, all the things you described in your own community, it's it's knit in a dozen different directions or more in every way, and it goes two ways. And so it's not just uh, atomized individuals making a lot of money. That's, that's not even close to what you need to, to build these kind of communities. Absolutely. Well put. In your book, you also point to some solutions or at least some paths to getting back on the track to building these communities, what in your mind can people do to start to do some repair and do some building so that uh, 20, 30 years from now, it won't be so necessary to write a book with the title Alienated America? Well, I think you're right to put the the burden on uh, the, the more local and more individual level, because there's not going to be some uh, 
bill in Congress that's going to solve this problem. It's not going to be some new cabinet agency of strong communities that's ever going to exist. There's stuff that the federal government can do, but most of it is sort of of the, the thou shalt not type of commandment. Thing, get out of, stop driving churches out of the public square, stop crowding them out. But on the local level, I think what we have to look at is just thinking about the fact that institutions are necessary, that you as an individual the best thing you can do is how is be a connector of people. You serve and give others the opportunity to serve others. And that that's sort of how we do the rebuilding. And another thing is setting norms. There's one conservative I talked to who was saying, well, maybe we need to outlaw uh, children having social media accounts. And it's sort of a crazy idea, but it's this, this desperate reaction to the fact that they see Snapchat and all these other things, pulling young people out of their actual physical environment and into some imaginary world where strong, lasting connections just are not made as well. And so my thought is, well, that you're obviously not going to have a law like that, but where we send our children to school, we send our kids to Catholic schools here in, in the D.C. area, and they all have those rules. Most kids don't have a phone at all. Certainly smartphones are... are are uh, confiscated if they're seen in the hallway. And just for most parents, if you said, I just want to keep my kid away from social media because it takes them away from family time and it it risks cyberbullying and low self-esteem, it's such an uphill fight. It's too hard for a husband and wife, however dedicated they are, to win that fight. My wife and I have put ourselves in a position where it's easier to win that fight because that's the norm. Nobody's going to convince us that, oh, all my friends have Snapchat account. You have to let me. And so setting the, the good norms that are aimed towards community building and building the institutions that help others serve others are, are the sort of the, the tactics and techniques that I think we have to take. Yeah, you're, you're not just simply taking the kid's phone away. You're limiting the use of that phone during times when the child, the student, has some place to flourish in other ways that are healthy. Yeah, building an environment where they don't even see the point of the phone because there's so much else around them. Now, you you point to this this really firm commitment to doing things as local as possible, and that sort of echoes the Catholic teaching on subsidiarity, but the other side of that coin is also solidarity, which is really what you get in things like the labor movement. But on the subsidiarity front, I was fascinated by your account of the, I think it's called the the Bishop's, the Bishop's Storehouse. Storehouse. Um, the Mormon system for giving aid to people who are in need, where they both have help, but they also have accountability. And wow, what a really strong local outreach that must be. Yeah, so it's this amazing thing I saw out there in Salt Lake City while working on Alienated America was the local welfare system, the church welfare system. And on the sort of regional level, so say for the whole city of Salt Lake City, there will be one, a storehouse where it's a, I guess you call it a grocery store without a cash register. And the people who go there are are sent there with a list that's signed by their own bishop. And so in the in the 
Mormon terminology, a bishop is some is basically like a a pastor. He's the head of the local congregation, and the there's somebody in each uh, a layman in each ward in each congregation whose job it is to make sure that if there's anyone in the family who's in need, they're getting what they need. And so there's this sort of personal consultation. What do you have stored up in your own house? What do you have stored up as far as savings? What are your needs and your expenses? And they try to give the people everything they need, but it's done on a very human level. Now, some people think this sounds uh, insanely intrusive, but I say compared to the government system, um, first of all, if it's coming from a Christian perspective of love, it doesn't. It's not going to seem as intrusive. But second of all, nobody's making you take a drug test. Nobody is uh, triple checking your bank accounts or running audits or anything like that. And you're just showing up and you're picking up the food as you know what your family needs and filled out together with um, with the, the, the people in charge of your own little congregation there. And it creates an accountability without having to be prying and conducting drug tests and also is a guard against um, against people slipping through the cracks. It's not just a guard against fraud. It's a guard against people slipping through the cracks because your neighbors are there to check on you. Nobody's going to get rejected because they filled out a form wrong because it's a human level thing of the people you're seeing every Sunday. So it, a lot of people look at that and say, that's just weird. I don't like the idea of my neighbors being the one to help me out. But I think that's part of the alienated mindset. That's part of the problem here. There's people who, who think an anonymous federal welfare state is better because it's less it's somehow less demeaning to, to run through this bureaucracy. And I just think if you start from that mindset, you're never going to get to a point of strong communities and good outcomes. Right. And as you point out, these strong communities can, when they're not healthy, can also be intrusive or even suffocating. There is a downside to all of that. So, you know, things need to be kept in a healthy balance. But uh, this example, neighbors caring for neighbors, people actually looking you in the face, knowing your name, uh, giving you help, but also asking you what you're going to do about the situation uh, long term. So that um, was a really um, neat example. Yeah, no, that was, that was eye-opening for me there. We're running short of time, Tim, so I want to, uh, if I can, read just a little bit from your book to, to give people a sense of what you've accomplished here with this book. Alienation is the disease of working-class America. Its most important accompaniment is family collapse. Strong families are the necessary condition of the good life, of economic mobility, and of the American dream. The story of election 2016, the story of the working class struggle in America, the story of rising suicides and crumbling families, and the story of growing inequality and falling economic mobility is properly understood as the story of the dissolution of civil society. This is a great book, Tim. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for talking with us today. We're looking forward to seeing you in Grand Rapids on April 3rd. Uh, If you're listening in, you can find out more about the event Acting on Tap with Tim Carney. Tim, thanks a million. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. 
We're always trying to make a great show for you. And one of the ways in which we can do that is to use feedback from you. We would love to hear from you. Whether you'd like to suggest a specific guest or topic, let us know what you like or dislike in our shows, or just generally let us know why you like listening. You can shoot us an email at actinline at actin.org. In addition to that, we're trying to create a new occasional segment for the show. If you have any questions related to a subject we've covered on this podcast before, or questions related to economics, faith, business, or maybe a current issue you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, leave us a message at 888-705-4180. If your question is picked, you'll get to hear it on the show, and members of our team here at the Acton Institute will break it down on the podcast. Last but definitely not least, if you like Act In Line, please subscribe today. And don't forget to share it with your friends or family members who might also enjoy listening to this podcast. We're available on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. This episode is produced by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel.